0: Good evening. Thank you all for being here this evening for what we all know is a, a very worthy cause. My name is Darryl Cobbins. I'm a uh, founding board member of Just City. I want to make sure that we first acknowledge any and everyone that's had something to do with this organization being founded and getting going. So stand up, if you have. New board members, too, You can stand up. So um, the noted theologian, academic, um, Professor Cornel West said, let us never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. And when we look at our city of Memphis, we see that we need a lot of love. We also need a lot of justice. But looking at the history of our city, you see that in its most critical and necessary times, citizens have stood up and made that love in public a reality. If you think about our yellow fever epidemic, when Memphis's population shrunk by about 75%, there was a core group of folks who stuck it out, held the city together until it could be resurrected and reconstituted and continue forward for future generations. If you think about the King assassination, when the city literally could have fallen apart. There were citizens who stepped forward and held the city together so that future generations could prosper. And so today, when we watch the news, when we see a system that has so many people trapped for a host of reasons, We have to be those citizens in our time that step forward and hold the city together and show what love looks like in public. And so this evening is just the first step in that journey. And we're elated that each and every one of you have an interest, a commitment, and a desire to be a part of that. And so as we go forward this evening, hopefully we've gotten your information, but you'll have an opportunity to lock arms with all of us as we walk forward as Memphians, as the stewards of our time to show America that Memphis knows and can exhibit what love looks like in public. So thank you for being here this evening, and we look forward to a grand evening.
1: No one's gonna wanna buy that farm-uh. Uh-uh.
2: I was 25 I was moving to Memphis from Vanderbilt Divinity School with a mandate to champion the gospel at the margins of our society. I had been in that spring arrested in a protest a civil disobedience action against the death penalty in Nashville. Nineteen of us linked arms. They took us to jail in a bus that was really nice, (laughs) it was nicer than my car, (laughs) it had these extra plush seats that were super comfortable and thick and plenty of room and big windows, we all sang throughout the booking process and our dean came to bail us out, the whole thing was like a special tourist visa to the country of arrest and processing. I've learned now that justice isn't a place you vacation to. The whole idea that a society or layers of a society can opt out or remain ignorant of the vast processes we call justice is a poor idea. And tonight, we're hoping to begin to replace it with another one where justice is at least as important to your sense of society as prompt garbage collection and the maintenance of potholes on your streets, and the schools we make for our kids. In other words, a part of what we do in order to make our city, a part of what we do in order to make our city. Part of what we think about, part of what we talk about when we talk about how people ought to live together in Memphis. To do that, we have this great show. We put together a band, and since 90% of the people who interact with the criminal justice system are male and all-male cast, Our next show in September is about women. Check out Just City on Facebook for details. They have an office and a Twitter account. (laughs) They're real. I met Darius Clayton, our first speaker, Fat Mac, when he was promoting a pop-up club down at the next-to-last Memphix in the Edge. His last show, Darker Than Blue, extended a second night to an overflow crowd at Martial Arts in June. He has this story from a few years back right here in Memphis, Darius Batmack-Clayton. How
3: y'all doing? Do I need this microphone? I'm pretty country. He said yes? Yes, I need the mic? Yes. Okay. Okay, I guess I do need the mic, and I shall use it. All right. So I'm going to try to get to this whole story without all the Orange Man coming out. <laughs> all right. I'm a little nervous, I ain't going to lie. So I guess we're going to go back, right? So um, I had to be about 19, and I was in school. I wanted to go to TSU, but um, like most of my peers, I ended up at Southwest Community College, trying to get everything together, Right? Um, I got responsibilities, so I had to get a job. Um, because I wasn't being responsible, I thought I had to take care of more than one person, so I had to get two jobs. Y'all understand what I'm saying? And um, I ended up working at FedEx. And at FedEx, I, um, I ended up getting this full-time position. You know what I mean? And I'm young, and all my friends are like part-timers, and I'm working like 40, 50 hours a week at this point. Um, I'm still in school, but I'm making like five to $600 a week. And I'm like, this is it. <laughs> I'm making more than most of my friends' parents now. So this is pretty much it for me, right? Um, I got into the management training program, Aspire, I believe it's called, right? Cause I'm gonna be a FedEx manager. Cause I won't just be an employee like my mother. You know what I mean? I'm gonna move up. And um, you ever just been too smart for, for your own good? That's like my biggest disease. So there's nobody watching me. There's no manager to stand over me and make sure that I do what I'm supposed to do every day. So, of course, I figured out ways to, let's cut that down just a little bit. I figured out a way to beat the system, shortcut through my job, you know what I mean? Work gets done, it's very quick. It's probably more efficient than the system that they had set up, which gives me a lot of leisure time, right? But my issue, even today, It's showing up on time. So there's a computer where we clock in, right? So you print a label out, and on that label, it has a time. Obviously, you had to be at your workstation to print that label out. So on that time, we would tear that time off of that label and put that on our time cards because that's what time we actually got to work. I pimped this system for about two years. right? And um, I had a friend who was working with me. Seemed to be a cool guy. He's up to about 15 tardies, right? So he's on his way out the door. And he's just telling me about how sad it is and whatever. So I kind of felt sorry for him. And I was like, it's a computer. There's a clock in the corner. You change the time on that clock. When you print your label, that's what time it is. Just remember to set the clock back. Mm-hmm. He's like, genius, right? So that's cool, we, you know, that guy does that. And then I get moved to another location and I'm always running late. and People always sending around. I gotta do what I gotta do to make sure I'm not late, right? So a few people see me do it at that location and now they on to it, right? Mm-hmm. Then I got another friend that starts and he's working and he's, same situation, never can come back from lunch on time. So I'll show him how to do it as well. Before I knew it, I'm at the top of like this pyramid scheme of time, chief. And sure enough, people just aren't as careful as I was. Right? Because I'm not telling them the whole game about, you know, yeah, you know, all right, bro, what you got to, I'm going to get, it's the orange man part. Mm-hmm. All right, bro, look, you security, yep. you know I'm going to be late. I'm going to call you, yep. sign my name in <laughs> to show that I'm on time. <laughs> so that way the security gate already has the right time. So when I come in and clock in, everything's solid. So they're doing it, and things aren't lining up for them. So when management finds out or catches them, they get called into the office. And when you about to get fired, well, Darius does it all the time. Right? So my team lead is one of my homies. We super tight, right? So he's like, bro, they watching you. So I'm trying to remain under the radar the best I can. I'm showing up to work 20 minutes ahead of time. Nobody's going to catch me, right? But now there's been eight people who've been fired by using the process that I taught them, kind of. So my manager, she loves me. She loves me so much. You know what I mean? So there's a moment to where I have to be called in to the office for questioning because all eight people have mentioned my name now. Nobody has caught me doing it. There's no proof of me doing it, but eight people can't be wrong. So my team lead, that's my homie's like, you gotta go to the office. She owned you, bruh, just, you know what I'm saying? Play it smooth, everything will work out. So I go back home and I'm taking care of my friends, basically, because we're all artists. So I'm the only one with the good credit and a good job. I got a three-bedroom home in East Memphis, right? Got a nice little bank account stacked up. All the good stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So they're living with me because they're inspiring artists, too. They pay rent when they can. I tell them what's going on. They say, "Bro, excuse my French. I'm not even sure if it's French, but fuck that job, bro." <laughs> You one of the best poets I know, bro. You cold. Don't worry about that, bro. You need to be out there performing. You need to be chasing your art form. Not working this job. Don't worry about that job, bro. When you go in there, you bounce up. You tell that manager what's up. You right, bro. You right, bro. You right. You right, bro. Because I ain't thinking I'm the one paying the bills here. You know what I'm saying? We running a studio in the house. My utility bill be like $900 a month. House note like $1,000. I don't even want to talk about my club expenses. Dating expenses. It's a lot of money is what I'm trying to say. I'm right. So I get into the manager's office, right? And she says, Darius. There is no proof that you've been doing this. But word of mouth, he say, she say, that you've been changing the time on the clock to beat your clock in time. But there's no proof that you've been doing this. Nobody's been able to catch you in the act of. I must now ask you, on the record, have you ever done this? I I might have tried it one time. Tears are running down her face. I said
4: there's no proof,
3: we have to terminate you, so that's it, five to six hundred dollars a week now gone, my side hustle promoting shows is all that I stand on, I got a cousin just got out of jail right, he sees the way I'm living, and he like cub, you a hustler cub, Remember that you a hustler. Mm-mm. That's in you. You're gonna make a way to get it. Mm-mm. Now I might have dibbled and dabble with my friends. You understand what I'm trying to say right now? You do what I do, so I'll sell it to you. Because I know you do what I do. Right? My cousin brings me. Can I say this? Yeah, I'm gonna make this up. This is all this is made up. <laughs> He brings me like 30 pounds of marijuana, two ounces of cocaine, a shotgun, tells me that we're going to rob the pill, man. I'm going to be the new king of Memphis when it comes to pills. I'm going to be out here. I'm going to have everything. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to have more money than I ever thought. That little piece of shit-ass money that I was making on my job is nothing. You finna be straight, cub. You finna ride like I ride. You finna be clean like I'm clean. You finna be on, cub. We have a little fallout over some missing drugs. Turns out he was just trying to trick me to get money out of my pocket. He never intended for me to actually sell the drugs. He knew that I was green. How many people know what green is? Green is like um, you're square, you're lame, you're not up to date on the drug selling. I'm very not that new, but just—I'm not a crook, criminal kind of dude. You know what I mean? Very honest. Is how I lost my job, <laughs> right? So, uh, <laughs> so he's just like. Whoever got the drug, cause we need to kidnap him, cause we need to whoop him, man. Whoever came to the house, you need to do an inventory, who all came through here, cause we need to do something to him. I'm not ready for that lifestyle. I give that all up. You can have all this back. Here's the money that I got on me. We done with this, right? So now, I am a hustler. So I'ma figure a way out, right? So me and my homeboy, we knew somebody that made homemade pickles. Multiple flavors. I don't know how y'all know, or if y'all know, but girls in the hood love pickles in multiple flavors. I ain't lying. I ain't lying. You might love it too, I don't know. You might have never had the pleasure, but if you did have a sour pickle or a hot pickle or hot sour dill pickle from me, You're going to call me every week. So we jarred it up, just like we did with the dope, right? We packaging up the pickles. Also, it was hot outside. It was the summer. So what we did was we got bottled waters and all that kind of stuff, and we got CDs, and we got out there, and we just hustling, hustling, hustling. And I got a part-time job, right? Because I was just trying to make it. See, I've been working this grave shift. And I ain't made shit, I wish I could just buy me a spaceship and fly past the sky. I've been working this grave shift, and I ain't made shit. I wish I could just buy me a spaceship and fly past the sky. Urban eyes, urban life They say I'm lazy because they don't see my double life What well, allow me the time to take this pen and paint a picture So you can get a peek within my conflict-ridden existence You see, I need work But I can't seem to find work that's willing to pay me what I'm worth They say that it's easy to find work That just depends on how you define work You see, cause got good work I just don't think the consequences are worth it I'm trying hard, but I ain't perfect Living the life of a poor man, and I know I don't deserve this backwards living. You see, you even need money first to buy work. Now, mom's hurt because I'm jumping head first in the living ass backwards. Chasing the only thing that matters, money. See, we all know if you have money and own land, you seem to own the only opinion that matters. And honestly, I just want my opinion to matter. Let's not even pretend that pretty women, pretty women only jock men who clock in or possess ends I've been dreaming and my dreaming days are coming to an end. And at this point, I'm willing to take whatever job they're handing out. So you want me to mop your floors? Put on your uniform? Wear a hairnet? Take your trash out? Clean around your toilets? Smile at your customers? For $7.50? And no clout? All right, I'll take it. It ain't respecting me, so y'all know I can't respect this shit. I'm walking in 15 seconds before it's time for me to clock in, rush in, and somehow I still get caught by the clock. You see, I too was once caught in that box. Feeling so trapped that I even removed my locks. Till I found the key in me and I unlocked that brain chains and locks, realizing all the shadows in I box. And now I set the time on my own clock. Now the only problem is I work a 24-hour shift, but it's a gift that I use to uplift as I prepare to rip ties until I can get a grip on my life. See, these words, these words shine bright to those who need sunshine their lives until they, too, are free from unwanted nine to five. See, I will prove that on my own tools, I can survive with this mind. Not by any means, but my own means. Hype life. I built my own team. Complete my own schemes. Finish my own dreams. Ever since I decided to live this workman's dreams, I'm just filled with all these questions, and I'm only, I'm only begging for answers. Like, do you want to live? I'm sorry. Do you want to live? Do you want to feed your kids? Do you want to survive? Well. Well, just sign your name on the dotted line. Now your mind is mine from the hours of 9 to 5. See, they sign as owners of ownership. We working on the ship, hoping to own the ship. We must be on some. Well, let's get ownership if it ain't nothing to do but do it. We've been doing so much with so little for so long, we are not qualified to do anything but nothing. We are the creators of shortcuts. We profit from bootlegs. We are known for starting stuff, but choosing to be led. Ways were paid. Some we be straight. We are still enslaved. The only difference is, now your uppity ass is getting paid. But whips are pink slips. Their field worker is their warehouse associate. The houseworker is their middle management. I have an Uncle Tom or a Sambo for a lead. If I take an extra five minutes on my break, he's going to snitch on me. Master on the executive board. And where we at? Still wishing for freedom. So swing low, sweet chariot. Coming forth to carry me home till we can really get on. Opened up businesses till we own. Until then, my five minute break is over, and I'm gone. That's that piece.
5: One hundred billion dollars was spent on illegal drugs in America last year. Seven point three percent is the current unemployment rate in Memphis, Tennessee. Nine point four. The percentage of Americans age 12 and older who used illegal drugs last last year. 37% of American 12th graders used marijuana last year. 51% of American 12th graders used marijuana in 1979. 40% of U.S. drug arrests are for marijuana possession. 2.5 hours on average a police officer spends making this arrest. 100,000, the estimated number of hours New York police officers spent on marijuana possession arrests last year. 48.6, the percentage of federal inmates currently being held on drug drug charges. 9.9, number of years on average inmates spend in prison for drug crimes in Tennessee. 9.3, the percentage of federal inmates currently being held on charges related to immigration: 1.7 million. The number of arrests in the U.S. for nonviolent drug crimes in 2009: 20% of those 1.7 million arrests were made for either selling or manufacturing an illegal drug. 68% of burglary arrestees tested positive for illegal drug use. 50% for f- 56% for forgery or fraud. 48% for homicide. 5,005, the number of gun deaths in the U.S. through June 3rd of this year. 385, over the same period, the number of people who died from police gunshots. 15, the percentage of those individuals who were unarmed white victims. 30% of those who were unarmed and black.
2: To make sense of the bias against dark skin in this country, why it persists in levels of government and civic infrastructure, even when the actual workforce is balanced and representative of the racial makeup of the overall population? Why do even black cops shoot more black kids than white ones? To make sense of that, reporters have tracked media reports, and it turns out that even though most crime occurs within a given community, white on white, black on black, men and women who know each other often fairly well, the news consistently over reports black on white crime and especially crimes perpetrated by black men against white women. Terrifying. It is terrifying. And if you come to associate fear with blackness, then it's abhorrent. Fear has this way of hiding. It barricades behind anger, Judgment, anger, hatred, death. But if you can get through and face the fear itself, if you can hold it up and examine it, there's rarely much there. In a just city, the people examine the fears at the root of their prejudices, which the numbers say we have. We learn to tell the truth about them. One brave voice by one. Jeffrey Reddick is a former producer for Bob Edwards Weekend and writes for Deadspin.
1: This is a story told in snapshot memories. Snapshots because months and years elapsed during which race was not the chief concern of my day. It's the story of how it took me three decades to catch up to learn as much about race in America as an African-American kindergartner knows on the first day of school. So at the beginning, I'm about four or five at my grandparents' house for a weekend visit, playing in the living room while the adults talk. My grandmother tells a story about a colored man. Colored. Like, with a crayon? That happened to me? I never found out. Best song in the world is I'm So Excited. Every time I hear it on the radio, I'm so excited. I can't, just can't hide it. When the DJ says the Pointer Sisters will be in town for a concert, I ask my mom if, she can, if we can go and she says, did you know they're black? Meaning that isn't for you. I'm no longer about to lose control. I'm confused about what she said. We stay home. I'm six. Most of the kids in my school are white. One who isn't wears a red leather jacket. He says it's like Michael Jackson's. It's amazing. A unicolor dream coat. None of my clothes look like that. He talks a lot. One thing he tells the teacher is, bad means good, like really good. This kid knows more than the teacher. I want to be his student. My parents divorce. Two separate meager incomes being less than their sum. Neither parent has a great apartment. Moms are worse than dads, often in suburban public housing projects. When I'm 10, my brother and I are playing soccer at one of these places. An older kid starts pushing me around trying to pick a fight. He's huge and his face looks mean. He's black. I'm terrified. He's just as scary as the white bullies at my school, but at this complex, I don't know anyone but my mom and my brother. It's not my turf. My brother and I run home. I'm convinced everyone who lives there will be waiting for me the next time I step outside. I feel bad thinking that, but I think it anyway. We moved to a different complex. I'm 12 or 13. White kids live down the street in real houses. Walking from the school bus, they turn into their driveways. They're surprised to see me continue on. They've never known anyone who crossed that property line. I feel the shame of poverty. The black kids feel it too, but they also feel the shame of being associated with a nerdy white kid. They like my brother, though, because he can play ball. In high school, I learned about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. I am proud that Ohio, my home state, was so important in the fight for abolition. I am proud that Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman were native Ohioans. I feel actual joy contemplating Sherman's march to the sea, breaking the spirits of the slaveholders and those who would defend them. I get a summer job with a farmer. One day at lunchtime, the boss takes me to a diner. Just as our food comes, he points out an old guy across the room. He says, that's the Grand Dragon over there. He is as proud as I am of Grant and Sherman. I don't say anything. I just sit quietly, trying to figure out which test I have just failed. My best friend, a white liberal firebrand, is a tireless volunteer for all manner of downtrodden people. We're in his car driving through town. He stops at an intersection, glances up the street, sees a black man walking toward us, and hits the power locks. He is immediately horrified at himself, and I feel defeated. I'm thinking, even he's not immune to the deep lizard-brain fear of black people. What chance do I have? Another friend is one of the smartest kids in school, a musician, the Macduff to my Macbeth on stage. He is African American. His family has a pool in their backyard. His dad tells me a story about my friend's sister, who doesn't like to swim in the pool but does like to lay on a towel next to it. He says, I asked her what she was doing, and she said, getting a tan. He laughs and laughs and I don't know whether I'm allowed to join him. When that friend of mine gets accepted to Yale, my girlfriend says it's only because he's black. I know this is an indefensible thing to say, something that should start an argument at least, uh, but I also know that I like making out with her, so I let it pass. In college, I take several African-American film studies courses, partly because I want to learn about the ways that popular culture feeds popular stereotypes, partly because I like movies, and partly because I have a desperate crush on a graduate assistant. When we see Jungle Fever in class, I'm so excited, I just can't hide it. (laughs) I learn about minstrel shows, about mammies and bucks about black exploitation and buddy films. I learn about co-opting culture for greed. I learn to feel out of place when I object to trope-heavy movies that pack the theaters full of African-American patrons. I boycott on their behalf trying to transform myself into another trope, the white savior. I minor in Latin American studies. After reading about the School of the Americas and the mothers of the disappeared, the dictators Papa Doc, Baby Doc, Trujillo, and Pinochet, the compromised, almost heroes Salvador Allende, Daniel Ortega, Castro, and Guevara, I am ready to drive south from Ohio all the way to Cape Horn with a press pass and a notebook filing reports about every fresh atrocity committed with the sponsorship of the American government. I am ready to burn this motherfucker down. Instead, I meet a girl from Memphis and get a job here in public radio. (laughs) Early in my tenure at the station, a grown man who is African American calls me boss. I am not his supervisor. I stand in place, shocked. I wonder if he's being sarcastic playing with a naive Midwesterner, but he's serious. Later, we learn each other's names. Here, I am told which shopping centers to avoid, which neighborhoods to stay out of. I learn the third world geography of shanty towns and the shadows of mansions, the country club across the tracks from derelict storefronts. I learn the curious dance of separate but mixing of implicit suspicions of coded comments. I buy a ticket to the motel-turned mausoleum, an imperfect and too small structure to contain either the spirit of a prophet or the memory of his angry grief. I visit the city park that bears the remains of the Grand Dragon's pagan god. In all of it, I see a greater honesty than what existed in the place where I grew up. Here is the world as it is. Broken. My wife and I have a daughter. We decide not to teach her words for race. To her, a person she's playing with has brown eyes or pretty bows in her hair or a sparkly bracelet. A grown-up sees my daughter's best friends as African American, Indian, Hispanic, but she's six before she learns words like that. I am painfully aware that even as we try to give her young mind the chance to escape its lizard-brain fears, we are expressing the height of her privilege, allowing her to remain ignorant of the terms her friends know, as well as they know their own names. I go to a football game in Dallas with one of my closest friends in the world, a man who helped walk me out of despair after my mother died. We see an ugly game, but we have a great time. We drive home. Just before we run out of Texas interstate, a highway patrol officer pulls us over. My friend had been driving in the left lane of a deserted road. They don't take kindly to that down there. The officer has a lot of questions. He's chatty, he's inquisitive, nosy. He gets my friend out of the car and into the cruiser. Did I mention my friend is black? I remain in the car with my heart fluttering like an injured bird. Fight or flight is engaged. Should I get out my phone, record something? Should I get out of the car? What's happening in the police car? Is my friend going to come back? He does, with a ticket. We continue on, but our trip is no longer shared by us alone. Simon Legree and Jim Crow are sitting between us. They're satisfied, but we're enraged. My friend's anger is pure. Mine is clouded with uncertainty. Am I allowed to be as angry as he is? I feel united with him by the experience, but held apart because the experience is not mine in the way that it is his. To the very core of his identity, as described by the structure of the culture, what has happened to him is what he is for, it's his purpose to be hassled, to be moved along, to be questioned and belittled and needled, and when the purpose becomes too much so that he strikes out, to be struck down in righteous anger. My purpose is to provide cover for the culture. Evidence of no objection, evidence of by-the-book expectations, evidence of nothing to see here. At this point in his life, my friend's role has been made clear to him more often than he can remember each instance fading out of singularity into a vast legion my role has never been laid so bare to me as it is now or maybe definitely my attention has never been sharp enough to see that practice makes perfect marionette pulls of the man behind the curtain In the car, each of us rails against our purpose. The difference is that my rebellion won't get me killed. Killed like Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice and Michael Brown and Eric Garner and Amanu Diallo and Sandra Bland and Walter Scott and Renisha McBride and Darius Stewart and dozens and dozens more and just wait a few days for the next one. Their mothers, not of the disappeared but of the dispatched in plain view, the teachings of the School of the Americas come home to America herself. I no longer need to visit every country between here and Cape Horn looking for reasons to burn this motherfucker down. The names of my children will never be on that list, and neither will mine. The state trooper who stops a tenured college professor, an internationally acclaimed musician, because he is a black man driving a blue Impala in the left lane of the interstate, is not troubled by his white passenger. He judges that the passenger is no threat to public order, but he is wrong. The enemy of public order. Isn't the young man walking down the dark street, or the college professor trying to get into his own home, or the driver who fails to signal, or the stranded motorist knocking on a stranger's door for help, or even the guy on the corner trying to make enough money to escape the blasted wreckage of his derelict neighborhood in order to have a chance to live the dream named for the country that is repulsed by his existence? The true agent of evil, the true enemy of liberty and justice for all, is the one who remains silent at the sound of a bigoted comment shooting from the mouth of a relative, the one who choruses with the telephone game whisper campaign of they and them and those people. The one who shrugs off yet another moment of street-side execution by armed protectors who were supposed to serve. The one who fetishizes the fear of dark-skinned mugshots on the nightly news in order to build an emotional bulwark against the legacy of the original and enduring violent sin of the Republic. The one who mourns the fall of Atticus Finch from his Trojan horse of law and order. The one who poaches the constant struggles of those around him to inspire change within himself. The one who sits impotently in the presence of the Grand Dragon, instead of rising to become Sherman, destroyer of worlds, to shout him down and shut him out, to salt his fields for all time, to vaporize his poisonous heritage, to break his spirit once and for all. I've met the enemy and he is me.
5: in 100. In 2008, for the first time ever, 1 in 100 American Americans are in jail or prison. 500,000. The number of Americans in jail or prison in 1980. 2 million. The number of Americans in jail or prison in 2000. 1,706,000. Their children. 55 the most recent number of Japanese in jail or prison per 100,000. 114, the most recent number of Canadians in jail or prison per 100,000. 730, the most recent number of Americans in jail or prison per 100,000. 25% of the world's prisoners live in the United States. 5% of the world's entire population is in the United States. If we were to populate an American city with people under correctional supervision, it would be the second largest city in America. One in 31. Those Americans under control of the criminal justice system, whether it's jail, prison, probation, or parole. One in 18 are men, one in 11 are black. 3,080 the number of crimes per 100,000 in 1969. 3,466, the number of crimes per 100,000 in 2009. Zero, the difference in the crime rate between 1969 and 2009. 23, the number of new prisons California has built over the past 23 years. One, The number of new public colleges California has built over the past 23 years. 100 million, the approximate cost to build a new prison in California. Since 1995, the increase on national spending on prisons as compared to spending on higher education is six times, six times as much. 42% of Tennessee jails are filled at 100% or more capacity as of last month. $74 the cost it takes to imprison someone for one day in Tennessee. $27,000, the cost to imprison someone for a year in Tennessee. And listen closely, this is a big one. $948 million, the cost to operate the Tennessee Department of Corrections. 9,000, Memphians currently on probation or parole. Two-thirds is the proportion of people entering prison today as a result of violating probation or parole. Forty percent of those who return to state pr- will return to state prison within three years. Ninety-five, the percentage of those currently incarcerated who will eventually be released.
6: Man, numbers, right? Numbers, numbers, numbers. I love numbers. I'm on my last lap this post-grad thing I'm doing in statistics. I'm really glad they got uh, Patrick to run the crime numbers tonight because it means I get to um, talk about something I like even more than numbers. I want to talk about why people ignore the numbers. So um, there's good numbers and bad numbers. There's well-researched statistics and poorly-researched statistics. And you talk about that, that's a whole other discussion. But tonight we're just going to talk about Numbers that reflect truth, stuff we know that's accurate. Most people here probably know that since the mid-90s, crime rate in America has been on a steady and steep decline, right? But a lot of people don't know that the crime rate in this country today is lower than it's been at any time in the past 40 years, right? The weird thing is that's true, and we have statistics that can prove all that. So how is it possible we still have folks who say, crime is worse than it's ever been. We're drowning in a sea of criminal activity. we got to gun up and, and defend our homes. When there aren't, a, there's, there's no statistics that would suggest that we're in the middle of some kind of national crime surge, right? Um, the deal is, is is, there's actually a name for this kind of thing where people are able to uh, have a disconnect between demonstrable reality and the reality they concoct for themselves. And we call it a cognitive bias. And uh, cognitive bias is this uh, disconnect in a logical process that allows you to do stuff like that. But uh, it also makes you make bad decisions. And, can negatively affect your judgment, uh, your behavior, your memories, stuff like that. And uh, when you're in the throes of cognitive bias, you really just sort of turn into an automaton. You're not thinking anymore. Those are all concepts. Let's do an an example. Uh, When I uh, graduated from college, I had this job where I I traveled a bunch. I was uh, flying all over the country for work like three or four times a week. I'm on a flight going somewhere. And I'm working with this guy, and he spends as much time in there as I do. He's completely obsessed with uh, airplane crashes, right? Completely. His cubicle walls are covered with with newspaper articles cut out going back decades of every manner of, uh, of air travel mishap you can imagine. And... Uh, Every now and then, there's, in fact, another accident. And he says, see? See, this is what I'm talking about. All of this flying is really dangerous. Well, the weird thing is that this, this guy's an auditor. He is, he's all about the numbers. That's his deal, right? And he knows. He's fully aware that the chance of dying in an airplane crash is really, really tiny, right? But he's obsessed with it. He's convinced this is how he's going to go. A lot of this stuff doesn't make sense, uh, and all the numbers, so I'm going to go with um, visual aids. So I've got this, uh, I got this peanut, I don't know if you can see it, but let's say this peanut represents your chances of dying in an airplane crash sometime. i got this balloon, I'm going to try and do this to scale, I, I worked it all out, so. Okay, that's about right. So. This represents your chance of dying because you choke on your lunch, your Chicken McNuggets. This is your chance of dying because uh, you're in an airplane crash. Okay, hang on. This here represents your chance of dying because you tripped over your cat at home and hit your head. This is your chance to die in an airplane crash. Hang on. This your chance of dying because you accidentally poisoned yourself. <laughs> airplane crash. <laughs> this is your chance of dying from respiratory disease. Airplane crash. Now, this is interesting because this guy I'm telling you this story about, the guy who's obsessed with airplane crashes, he's the only person I ever met. He's a chain smoker. He smokes all the time. But he's the only person i ever met, he chews tobacco while he
4: smokes.
6: (laughs) And he is fully aware of exactly how big the balloon is that represents respiratory disease death, right? But he's obsessed with a peanut. Okay, so what's going on in this guy's head? He's a smart guy. Well, this guy, in fact, is, is suffers from a touch of this one particular kind of cognitive dissonance we call confirmation bias, right? And the deal is, is you have some kind of irrational belief, and you cherry-pick data to support that, even though you know it's not true. So every time this guy sees something on TV about air fatality, injury, whatever, it just it beefs it up, right? It, it's fuel for this irrational thing. Yeah confirmation bias you see it all the time right okay another example I bet this has happened to somebody here so you just got back from a great vacation you went somewhere for a week like maybe uh, New York City right you're back home you're at a party you haven't seen your friends for a while so you're telling them about this fabulous trip you had to New York right Tell them how fantastic it is, all the great stuff there is to do, right? All the great stuff you saw. But partway through, somebody interrupted you and said, Hang on a second. I've been to New York City. I went a while ago. And uh, when I went, it rained every day. And there was a taxi strike. And some guy tried to sell me drugs on the subway. And the day that I went to the Guggenheim, it was closed for roof repairs. So, New York is not a fantastic place to visit. I'm never going back again. So what's up with this person who hates New York? I mean, okay, obviously they had a bad trip, right? But if New York was really that much of a bummer, don't you think the word would have got out by now? And then maybe New York tourism would start to, like, tail off instead of increase in decade over decade like it does? How do you explain this? I have no idea. So, we're gonna go back to the peanut and the balloon. Okay, so this New York hater at the party is the peanut, right? Actually, this peanut is a personal friend of mine, and I wanna thank you for coming and helping tonight. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and then we got the balloon. Miss Balloon is looking fabulous, I think. She always does. So, hang on, let's use a. <laughs> This isn't a scale, but this is the biggest balloon they had. Hater on New York. The millions of people who go to New York on vacation every year, and they do it over and over because they freaking love that place. Is it possible that the peanut knows the real truth about New York, and all of these people are just deluding themselves, it's no fun? It is absolutely possible. Is it probable? It's not really, right? 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong. So I'm going with the balloon people on this, right? But what about the peanut? What about this peanut person who hates New York? What's going on in their head, right? When you you take your own personal experiences and weigh them so heavy that you're able to ignore what you know is the greater reality. That's called a base rate fallacy, right? And uh, it makes a lot of people make bad decisions all day long, all the time. Base rate fallacy, right here. So, you might be thinking, okay, you say everything's awesome, crime's down. Flying is safe, New York is fun. So how come the media is all about nothing but bad news? What's up with that? Well, it turns out that we, for better or worse, are more interested in bad news than we are in good news. And there actually may be an evolutionary uh, reason for this. If you imagine, it's 100,000 years ago, and you've had a big day doing whatever the hell people did 100,000 years ago, for sure you're probably tired, and it's time for bed. You've seen a lot of crazy stuff, and you're whooped. You only have room in your brain for one takeaway from today, something you're going to remember tomorrow. And it's entirely possible that the thing you remember, the big snake with the hood and the fangs, is dangerous, if it bites you, you'll die. Maybe more valuable in the future than the tree next to the river has this purple fruit, which is really awesome. Right? So, for better or worse, we are sort of pre-programmed to be more interested in bad news. It's more fun to listen to, it's more fun to uh, read. And if you're in the media, in fact, it is more fun to write about, and it's more fun to talk about. But even though we all do it, the problem is, is it, it distorts your view of the world. You think things are worse than they are. And in fact, there's a cognitive bias. And it has this name you're not going to believe, it. it's called a negativity bias. And it makes you think things are worse than they are. So you, you don't get the truth, right? So, where does that leave us? Uh, this year is going to be a wild one. We've got this presidential election coming up, right? be a lot of numbers coming at you. Tons and tons and tons. Maybe too many. I don't know. Some of them are going to be good, some are going to be bad. Some of them are going to be well-researched, some of them aren't. And the tendency, you're going to want to say, enough, I'm done. I'm done with the numbers. No more numbers, man. But... Good numbers represent truth and reality. And uh, good numbers, like a good friend, don't always tell you what you want to hear. They tell you the truth, right? So don't shut it off. And don't ignore it. Listen and challenge it, you know? Because good numbers are good friends, just like a balloon and a peanut. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: stories tonight, same as you, and I realized we are changing reality right here. We are changing reality right here. I saw drafts emerge all week long. I heard tweak and retweak. I saw piles of numbers discarded. We kept the good ones. And what a show like this, what you being here tonight is about, is, isn't really the snakes out there in the reptile lizard brain of pre-human It's about making enough noise together that the snakes, the ones inside, the ones out there, get out of the way. And our reality can finally begin to conform to the different expectations of a just city. Kyle Statham studies statistics in his spare time. He wins spillets all over town. Tom Leonardo, Victor Sawyer, Joe Restivo on guitar, Patrick Hendricks had our numbers, Jeffrey Reddick, and Darius. Fat Mac Clayton, all right.
7: Thank you so much. I'm going to close this out real quick. My name is Kerry Hayes. I'm one of the co-founders and the advisors to Just City. And uh, it's my great privilege to give a few words of thanks, first and foremost, to Jared Bingham, who did not introduce himself, so I get to. So thanks to Jared and this awesome band and Darius and Jeffrey and Kyle and Patrick for making, literally making this evening uh, what it is. We're so grateful. And Jared gets a big shout out. Uh, for, for designing and concepting this whole thing through a series he does called SALT, which has addressed a lot of these issues in a very tough way for a long time at uh, Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, so thanks to you guys so much. Thanks, of course, to Hattie Lou Theatre, Ekendayo Bandele and his awesome team for letting us use this space, which is just such a miracle of Memphis creativity and collaboration and community and, and, uh, and energy, which we love so much. So thanks to Ekendayo. Be like us and be a Hattie Lou subscriber if you're not already. be uh, it's well worth every every penny that you'll invest uh the just city board daryl cobbins daniel keel Nish tamara elena de la vega jean jemison patrick hendricks l perry reggie davis some of you are not here tonight but i know everyone is here in spirit we're so grateful for everything you do in your own networks and communities and certainly everything you're giving to just city is so so important to us Uh, the shelby county public defender's office which is an entity from which we draw just continual inspiration and, and guidance we're so grateful for the work that they do uh, every day in, in every neighborhood of our city. And thanks, last but certainly not least, all of you who have now spent uh, an hour, a couple hours of us, uh, which is so uh, meaningful because your time is obviously the most valuable thing you have to give, and we're so grateful. So. I will give you a few ideas about other ways to spend your time with us, (laughs) if you want to, later this fall. The first uh, is a book club that we're doing around a book called Just Mercy, which is the memoir of an attorney named Brian Stevenson, who's actually coming to town to keynote uh, the Facing History and Ourselves benefit in November. So starting on August 18th. Uh, we're going to be hosting a three-meeting a three book club just to talk about his work and his book, which is extraordinary. On September 25th and 26th, Elle is curating an art uh, show for us called See Justice, which will be at the co-work space in Crosstown. You can get more information about all these things and some other things that we're planning if you go to our website and sign up. Uh, it's at justcity.org. And on your way out tonight, you're going to be given a pair of earbuds that have our logo on them and a hashtag that says "Hear Justice 901 So Hear Justice is the name of a podcast that we're gonna be starting in a couple of weeks that are again about a lot of these topics. We'll have the, the audio archive of this show. But the whole idea there is to just continually give uh, everyone more and more and more things to think about and talk about and read and hear and just more and more things that you can sort of ingest about these issues because that's really the the only way that we feel we're ever gonna see any meaningful change. So the the title of tonight's show that you probably saw on Facebook or Eventbrite was, What is a Just City? And we titled it that not because we have an answer, but because we want your help in asking the question. Because once you start to ask the question with us and for us, everything will change, I promise you. The way that you think about the evening news will change, the way you think about where you worship will change, where you think about your kid's school, where you shop, who you vote for. Everything will change once you put on that lens. Of asking yourself and the people around you what is a just city so if you believe that uh, expectations do create reality which they do we should start to expect that everyone in every neighborhood in this city has the same rights to health care to a good legal system to good schools as every other neighborhood right and creating that reality begins with expecting it so you'll see the little logo on the earbuds or maybe you've seen it already as a little shield and the shield is meant to be in defense of a set of principles that we think make us Memphians, make us Tennesseans, make us Americans. And the chief among that to us is the right to counsel. Once you start chipping away at the right to counsel for some people, you start to lose it for everybody. And if justice is gonna mean anything to any one of us, it's gotta mean everything to every one of us. And that's what we're about. So thank you so much for coming tonight.